get angry just thinking about it makes me mad. Little kids doing drugs, it turns my stomach. That stuff hurts. It stops you from living up to your potential. It holds you back. It hurts the user. It hurts his family. And it hurts his friends. I just want to shake some sense into you kids that are using drugs and think about using it. So remember, don't or else. Okay? Dad does. Dad does. Drugs. Drugs. Dad does drugs. Hello and welcome to Dad Does Drugs, a podcast which received this lovely advert recently on one of my favourite podcasts, Say Why to Drugs, with Susie Gage. In other news, I've been a guest on a couple of podcasts recently. The first is the amazing Dad Does Drugs podcast, about a man trying to work out how to talk to his kids about drugs by going and asking the experts. It's a really great listen and I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, Susie. Dr Susie Gage was a brilliant guest on episode 9 of this podcast where she talked to me about all the drug research she's done and lots that she's read. And the main thrust of our conversation was about cannabis research. And her latest podcast, on which that little mention was included, is all about CBD products and whether they have as many benefits as they claim to. It's really good, and I did think that before my narcissistic excitement at my own name being mentioned. To balance the yin and yang of media exposure, here's another anecdote. I received a phone call out of the blue this morning on my bike ride into work. I was pre-interviewed then via my very windy phone headphones for a slot on BBC Radio Scotland. So I get to work, I showered, dressed, prepped for the chat about decriminalisation of drugs in Scotland, a campaign that the newspaper The Daily Record has made its front page for a few days now. I then sat on hold, listening to 25 minutes of other people having a really interesting and spirited discussion with the host, Kay Adams, the woman off of Loose Women. Uh, But they never came to me. I was bumped in favour of real Scottish people, I think. Hey-ho. I'm not bitter. This week's guest is Michael Linnell. He runs Linnell Communications, or he has done for a few years now, and does consultancy services on drug and alcohol and public health research and communications. That's the kind of wordy way of saying I found out about him because of leaflets that he writes and illustrates and I picked a bunch of them up when I went to see The Loop at their drug testing service. So you might see these sort of things, I guess, at uh, anyway where you might go to a drug service where they want to provide information and I think they give them out at uh, festivals. So there's one on cocaine and crack, mephedrone, drug-related emergencies, ecstasy and LSD. I'm sure he's made lots of other ones as well, but they're just written in a really witty and honest way. There's lots of inclusion of quotes from people. He's gone and, as he talks about in the interview, met lots of drug users. And so, as well as putting in some facts and a bit of the science behind the myths and this sort of thing, uh, there's lots of first-hand accounts of what drugs feel like, what, what a bad trip felt like, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And then there's um, useful harm reduction rules and advice, uh, the legality of things. They're good, and I felt like he, I wanted to know how he got to be making all of those and, and how his style came about. And uh, he 
through the technical hitches on our Skype chat manages to explain all of that. Uh, so that's coming. And then at the end, I'll have a chat with my teenage son. I'm going to show him the leaflets and uh, see what he thinks of them. And my 11-year-old daughter has uh, just been doing her PSHE drug, alcohol and smoking lessons uh, in the final half term of her junior school life before she goes to secondary school. So I thought I'll have a chat with her about what she's learned in those and uh, I think it'll be interesting just for me and you to find out what our kids get told about drugs and alcohol and cigarettes while they're at school. Oh, and just before we start, one more thing. I would love it if you could help me win a podcast award. So I am registered with the podcastawards.com. If you go to that website, you can nominate me in the education or the people's choice categories. Podcastawards.com. Click on the big blue button in the middle that comes up then that says nominate here. You then do have to put in your name and an email address, but don't worry, they don't send you loads of bump and it doesn't take long. Uh, And then you just click on uh, the dot next to dad does drugs in the education category and the other dot next to dad does drugs in the people's choice category then you can just uh, save and and you're done you don't need to vote in all the other categories but if you do that if you think the podcast's good and you think it is doing a good educational job then i think by winning one it might get the message out to more people so it would be fantastic if you'd be happy to do that for me thank you start at the the beginning i think it was in the mid 80s when you first started working in in a drugs capacity doing your art so what what happened like uh, many people's careers it was a complete accident i kind of backed into it i'd uh, trained as a fine artist and i did my first degree in fine art Um, And I was actually working as um, part of a comedy acrobatic troupe, diving off the top of a transit van into a bucket when I had a fallout with the arts group that I was working with. Um, I was actually dressed as a chicken um, at this time. I had the fallout and stomped out (laughs) of all the dignity that you can manage when you've got huge feet and false wings on and decided that I needed a proper job. So I saw an advert in the newspaper, The Guardian, for an artist wanted to work for a drugs agency in Manchester. I'd never been to Manchester before and um, landed with a job on a two-year contract and ended up staying for 29 years. Wow. And why did they want an artist? Did they know at that point? They were never sure. Nobody could really work it out. They seemed to have... They didn't really know. I think they had an idea that um, they were doing a lot of training of professionals at the time and they wanted somebody to kind of do resources, but I never really did much of that anyway. And the sort of the the start of it really was, um, this was 1985, and um, HIV was really new. I mean, this was before it was even called HIV. It was HGLV3 in those days. And this seemed like a really growing threat. And at the time, the British government took the opposite view of the United States and said that HIV, or as it became, was a greater threat than drug misuse. So if you like, it gave us it gave us the excuse to, to change over the service to harm reduction. Now, at that time, there were only 
12 employees working for uh, the service that I worked for. It, it, by the time I left, there were 1,500. So we, we opened a needle exchange um, in Manchester, started to have contact with people who weren't just looking for treatment, who were looking for clean needles, etc. We had, I mean, I worked on it. We had kind of secretaries and everybody else kind of um, manning it because it wasn't uh, funded at that time. And from that, it was fairly clear that there was some education needed with this uh, group of um, predominantly heroin injectors. Um, and this was considered extremely controversial. I mean, you know, at that time, it was all just say no and that kind of education. Um, and harm reduction itself was was really controversial. I mean, we went to the very first harm reduction meeting in the UK, and I think there were about 10 of us, and we were banned from the offices of a certain London drugs agency because it was considered too controversial. But my approach was the same if I'd have been producing a gardening magazine for elderly gardeners that you, you've got a target audience, and the target audience in this case were heroin users. And the first thing is you've got to find something that people want to actually look at and read. And this, again, this is 1985, long before the days of the internet and the mobile phone. So we just sat down with some heroin users and we asked them what they read and what they liked and what they found funny. And at that time, Viz was particularly popular. So we kind of based it on that and we thought, well, our target audience are heroin users. The humour comes from all the research we did in speaking to them. We can we can put the kind of technical information in the messages about safer sex and safer injecting and the rest of it. Now we can either go and ask, you know, the a group of professionals, uh, whether they like it and whether they're going to be worried about it. And we knew full well what they would do is just go into blind panic and ban it. Or we can just say, let's get the money from somewhere else. Let's see if the heroin users like it. And, you know, things like, you know, it was banned by a probation service before it was even published. We're kind of selling points. And we did that. And... Um, it kind of grew from that. This, this publication was called Smack in the Eye. Twice we were interviewed by the Director of Public Q, uh, Prosecutions over it. Um, they were never quite sure what we were doing wrong legally, but they were sure we must be doing something wrong by using all this foul language and telling drug use, in, heroin injectors how to inject in a safer way, etc. But it, it, it grew from there, so... It, I developed a process where we, we, I think I must have done about over 200 publications or something, and they were for very specific target audiences. Now, this could vary from street-based male and female sex workers. Um, I spent a considerable time in an um, inpatient secure psychiatric unit working with people with severe mental illness who use drugs as well. Um, right through to, you know, ravers on the club scene to, you know, kind of everybody. And it was always this process of what are you interested in? What do you read? What's your life like? And doing kind of research like that and producing information for that particular group of uh, people. So if you like, it was a, a process that kind of developed through common sense 
um, I, I later went on to do a master's degree in health education just to kind of map out the sort of process that we were using. Um, and it got us into loads of trouble. I think we, I had many publications that were commissioned. I think over a 20-year period, every single one of them had been banned by the people who commissioned it at some point. We got threatened with arrest. We got you know, accused by the Daily Mail of um, uh, being a threat to the youth of Britain. But the you know the, the the target audience because they'd been produced with that target audience lapped them up and we you know we were we developed a self financing model within the charity so that we could um, sell these publications to people who could give them out so there was nobody who could kind of stop us. So I've had a look through on your on your website and you can kind of see the sort of library back copies of Smack in the Eye and lots of the other things that you've done. And, they, and it, it totally reminded me of Viz and a, and a comic that I used to get when I was a child as well called Oink, which was, again, very sort of irreverent and slightly dirty or foul-mouthed uh, characters. Uh, and some of your characters in uh, Smack in the Eye are called Grandpa, Smackhead Jones, Tough Shit Thomas, Peanut Pete. So it is all sort of grubby and, and a bit edgy. And, and, and I I can see why you would pick that style. And, and I, I can sense, as you're telling me these uh, stories of, uh, you know, the fact that you were you know, nearly prosecuted and, and what have you. It, it, it sounds to me like there's a, a, a glint in your eye. I can't see you down a Skype line, but there's a, a slight smile in your in your voice as you're saying it. You, you, you obviously were enjoying this, the notoriety of it. Did you get into it um, because you were passionate about harm reduction uh, or was it just a, a, an art job that you were looking for? Uh, obviously, much later, you, you did the health education master's. So obviously that sort of passion or, or that vocation grew on you to the extent that you wanted to do a, a master's in it. But w- what was the motivation to start with, if there was any, for working in the drugs world? Well, it's completely accidental. I mean, I, you know, I think I was sat there smoking a joint when I read the advert in The Guardian. I mean, it, it was never something I planned as a, as a career option. I obviously had some experience, like you know, many young people have nowadays, of kind of using drugs. But it wasn't really a passion for harm reduction because harm reduction didn't actually exist at that time. It was purely I wanted a job. And if I if I had a job, I wanted to do the job as, you know, I was being paid to help people who were using drugs. I wasn't being paid to make politicians feel nice or to please the local newspapers or people who were using drugs. That was my job. So the, the, the passion was about, you know, doing the job as as best I could, that the job was communicating with different groups of drug users. And for me, it was about finding what, you know, I used cartoons for years and years and years. I don't even particularly like cartoons myself, Um, but it was an effective way of communicating with that group. And that was the kind of passion. And it was, well, if you're going to affect somebody's life in a, in a kind of positive way, um, you're going to communicate with them. You can't, make any assumptions about the behaviour changes that people will make, but at least if you're going to portray that group of people, that you can bring them out as human beings and that you can show their sense of humour and, you know, they're not all, you know, crawling along the street on their knuckles, kind of, 
uh, injecting drugs all the time that you know there there are there's a there's a shade to people and they have got a sense of humor and it was it's kind of that that inspires me my my kind of fascination with with people and wanting to do a job rather than a a passion for harm reduction which has has come later you know as i've kind of been involved in it for so long yeah and was there though a sense of nervousness about doing a job in that area did did you feel like you were somehow being brave going out on a limb were you kind of aware that there might be some negative repercussions of being in that uh that field so early on as well when it when it was very taboo no it was you know i was a young man you know my view was well you know let's go and change the world there's you know the kind of arrogance of youth would kind of have it and the fact that everybody was really annoyed about it and wanted to prosecute us and newspapers calling us names and the rest of it was was just an added bonus to be honest and i mean that's where the training of being an artist kind of comes in handy that kind of shock value and you know upsetting people is 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 you know comes with the territory and i when i started making my podcast just a year ago i definitely felt that uh, same sort of thing of I want to do something that's going to be the tipping point it's going to change a load of people's minds and suddenly a whole load of middle class middle-aged parents like me are are all going to s- suddenly see the light and think we should legalize this and reform that and and it'll really change the landscape uh, now you've been uh, doing this job since the mid 80s and you're you know, you're still working in communicating drug awareness do you do you feel like you've been banging your head against a wall do you, or you know is it a bit depressing almost that not much has changed or do you think loads has changed i think loads has changed um in terms of drugs policy and the you know legalization um yeah i mean there's been changes but they're you know Obviously, drugs are still predominantly treated as a criminal justice issue rather than a health one, but it's changed beyond all recognition um, back and forth uh, numerous times. Um, I mean, my my day job, if, I mean, I work for myself, but my day job is managing drug early warning systems. So um, if you like, my passion now is new and emergent drugs. I mean, I'm just before speaking to you, I was, you know, kind of writing up a report, a report for the Great Manchester Drug Alert Panel about incidents we've, we've been dealing today. So, if you like, it's it's never taking that lightly. I mean, I've I've seen, you know, I've seen enough sites in the thirty odd years I've been dealing with this um, to to kind of not take things lightly. And I've 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 met, you know. A lot of parents whose children have died from drug misuse. But as I said, it's for me, it's about it's about doing an effective job. That you know, you have to realise what an emotive, moral issue drugs are, and that will always kind of affect people in different ways. But I never felt as though there would be a position where you would introduce a piece of legislation, whether that's you know sticking everybody in prison or legalising everything that would kind of solve this drugs problems. A lot of people saw it. You know, if you legalised all drugs tomorrow, you would solve some aspects of the problems, but you'd, you'd kind of create others. So it's just, for me, it's just been about, you know, kind of doing what you can. And um, yes, I, I can understand why 
Um, people think things were different uh, back in the day, but, you know, some things were better, some things were worse. And do you find it harder or less appealing now? You were talking about the fact that you had the sort of bravery of youth or just the kind of, you know, being a young man, you just wanted to go out there and shake things up a bit. How do you feel now as a uh, as a more middle-aged uh, chap doing it with a lot of experience? Is it is it harder work working in that field or...? Are you still um, motivated? I don't think we. I mean, I don't think we could have got away with um, what we did back then these days. Um, but I also think we don't need to because back in those days, I mean, there was there wasn't any drugs information that was available. Um, you know, if you could find a, a head shop that sold a few kind of books, you were, you know, you were really lucky if you lived in a big city, but there was no access to the kind of information that you kind of see on the internet. So there's almost, there's no need now to, to do a lot of uh, what we did. But to answer your question, um, would I find it, you know, is, is age a factor? Yeah, I think almost certainly the, the arrogance of uh, youth um, would probably mean that, you know, if I had to do the same things again now, I, I, I probably um, would do them slightly differently. Um, whether that's better or worse, I don't know. I've spent a bit of time with The Loop, the drug testing yeah, service, I'm and they are always having to defend themselves against the criticism that by what they do, they somehow uh, endorse or condone uh, drug use. And do, do you have you found that you've had to defend what you've done as well? You know, giving out lots of drug information. Has have you found that lots of people are just critical of it? Well, you know, if you if you let people know how to do it all more safely, you're just making more people likely to do it. Absolutely. We, we've been threatened with prosecution on numerous occasions. Um, we've, we've had, you know, God knows how many newspaper headlines and been threatened by people uh, for kind of doing it. Um, and the line was that, you know, what you should do is you should just tell people it's really dangerous and they should just not take drugs. Well, that doesn't work. Um, and, you know, it was fairly apparent that that didn't work before we had the, the kind of evidence to say that that doesn't work. So it really depends what your target audience is and what your kind of message is. If, you're, if you've got a, an overall message to society, that's different from if your message is aimed at people who are rough sleepers who are injecting heroin. If you're overall message is aimed at the rest of society that's different from if you're in a festival and you've got people coming into a tent who've got you know mdma or ketamine in their hands that they're about to use um in those situations and i'm a volunteer with the loop so i've, I've done a um a lot of the kind of feeding back to people where they've bought their drugs in as well and Yes, you go through those arguments, but for me, it's a moral issue about, you know, what I I will treat those young people the same if they were my own children. That, yes, it would be better and far safer for them if they didn't take their drugs, but they're obviously not going to do that. So if they are going to take them, finding out what's, what's in those drugs and giving them the kind of information that we've been producing for years about 
trying to reduce the risks of their particular drug use, trying to look after their friends, what to, you know, knowing what to do in an emergency, is the advice that I would have wanted when I was a young man and the advice that if it was my children in those situations that I would want given to them. Yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely how I felt about it, and I I, I thought the harm reduction chat at the end of the loop process, I, I went and followed it through, took some drugs in, got them tested, went through the whole sort of process, and recorded it for um, one of my earlier episodes of this, and I thought the harm reduction bit at the end was was fantastic, and and exactly what i would want for my teenage children when they get to that point if they're ever in a festival like that i'd I'd want them to be receiving all of that information or, or for their friends to be receiving it so that they can keep each other safe and and so on how how do you stay in the know and how, how have you stayed up to date with drug trends and and behaviors do you feel clued up do you have to do a lot of research do you just talk to a lot of people how, how do you feel like you you're still on the ball when you're producing leaflets? When I produce a leaflet, I would work directly with the target audience. Um, I'm just about to um, start some some more work working with people in a, a, a day centre for uh, rough sleepers with mental health problems. So the, the, the start of the process is going down and sitting down with them and, you know, finding out a bit about them, finding out, what would work best, what the kind of issues are in terms of their drug use and, and what would be the most useful advice to put in a, a particular publication. But in terms of staying up to date, I mean, these days it's, you know, with the internet, it's really, really easy. You know, when I first started, we had to to buy books and there just weren't books on uh, a lot of things. In 1991, 92, um, we produced the first ever leaflet, the peanut peat leaflet, on heat stroke in nightclubs, uh, based on a piece of uh, research that wasn't even published um, as yet. And to find out about um, heat stroke, I went to the local library and got a book on the, you know, literally the, the British Raj and people with piffa piff helmets who were, were talking about heat stroke in the topics because we just kind of didn't have access to it. So it's much easier these days. In terms of uh, what I find out myself, I, I coordinate a group called UK and Ireland Drug Watch, which is a completely voluntary online group. We have about three or 400 professionals in it who are interested in new and emergent drugs so we just basically share information about things that are coming along. So it's a range of different professionals who can kind of share their views and find out what's going on. I also uh, manage the Greater Manchester Drug Early Warning System. So that's uh, we have about 700 professionals in that. So we can find out about which particular drugs are in circulation. And we have a system in Manchester where we can where we get incidents, we can uh, get the drugs tested to find out what they, they are, as, as has happened in the case I'm dealing with literally as as we speak. And I'm also uh, employed by the university in Manchester, Manchester Metropolitan University, to do a, an emergent drugs trend study. So, you know, I, I, we've just completed the first year of that so that involved going out speaking to professionals and to kind of users 
But yeah, a mixture of everything, a mixture of, you know, finding out all you can reading on the internet by sharing information with other professionals and, you know, straightforward going out and, and talking to young people or old people or, you know, anybody else who's using drugs. Yeah. From a professional side, uh, I, I get it. But in your own life, if you if you your own children or you know nieces nephews you know students or what have you if you're if you're in a role at the university how easy do you find it to just have conversations about uh, about drug use i, I mean I, I made this podcast from the point of view of a parent wanting to be a bit more honest and open than i think drug conversations are between adults and, and young people generally i don't think you get much at school and i don't think many parents would would think that uh, they should explicitly talk about drug use to their children i think the just say no message still seems to be the one that uh, floats around for for most people and i found it nerve-wracking and and sort of a, a strange to have a conversation with my 13 year old son and talk uh, honestly about uh, drugs and and the fact that I have used them and uh, but also I didn't know if that was really important to say that but I did say it in, in a couple of occasions and but I wanted to sort of talk about honestly about the, the risks of uh, and and the the things that I'd learned about being a smoker for years which I really regretted or you know the, the harms of alcohol as well compared to the illegal drugs uh so have you talked to your own kids do, do, do you do you just think it that is a way of of being that we should all employ or have you, what have you learned about drug communication uh over the years practically doing it um i think the important thing is to 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 have an honest relationship with your kids now that's much easier said than done in a lot of cases I think it's much easier now where, where, you know, people can find out kind of accurate information more to, to have that kind of relationship where if somebody's, you know, you, your children are in crisis that they know that you can come to them and you're not going to condemn them or condone them um, in any way that, you, you know, you, you've got your, their best interests at heart. But it isn't easy, you know, it's no easier than having a conversation about, um, sex it's you know it, it's quite uncomfortable in a lot of ways uh, it de- and it also depends on the child I mean you know I, I've, I've a number of children um, all grown up now um, and one of them was um, a particularly uh, drug fancier uh, shall we say and I was able to have really honest um, conversations with him about his drug use um, mainly because sure i should be telling you this but um he initially it was thought through um somebody discovering all these um, aerosols um in the bedroom that he was sniffing solvents so the start of that conversation was you know sniffing solvents is is so dangerous that there isn't a safe way to do it there isn't really any harm reduction information for that at all it's far more dangerous than you know injecting heroin it's just don't do it and as it turned out you know this conversation led on to don't be daft i've read all your leaflets i would never use solvents i know how dangerous they are this, you know, the, the air freshness is to cover the smell of weed I'm smoking in the bedroom. <laughs> so you, you kind of you kind of get into it in, in, in different ways. But it's it, as I said, I mean, it, it's there's no easy way of doing it. I don't think there's a there's a magic trick or anything. And you know, each child is is kind of different, and each relationship with them, um, you know, we 
we we equally come across young people I've spoken to who's you know who's, whose granddad is smoking weed in the shed. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a particularly positive kind of role model. I don't think that's particularly useful for a lot of young people anyway, even though the last person I spoke to thought it was really, really cool. But as as much as possible, it's like, you know, you, you yes, you need to be open. Yes, you need to, if necessary, give them the kind of advice that, that is – that will keep them safe, which is, you know, the most important thing we're all worried about as well. But I also think it's quite important that you that you need to know there are barriers, that you need to know it's not big and not clever. You know, we might have, you know, I still vape now, you know, smoking cigarettes might be cool when you're, you know, 10 years old when I kind of like started, but it is really, really dangerous. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's important to, I don't know, to... to I don't know what I'm talking about now, I'm, which probably illustrates, you know, my, my point entirely that it's incredibly difficult to talk to your uh, children about it because it's it's a whole series of things which are about facts, which is about keeping them safe, which is about morality, which is about you know not wanting to encourage them to do things that are even more dangerous. So, no easy answer. It is difficult. It's probably the simple, quick answer. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I think it's difficult, and there aren't clear answers, but. I think having the conversation seems good. I, I did an interview on Five Live, and I really I was frustrated because the sort of the, the, I could hear the news jingle playing, and we were running out of time, uh, and so that obviously faded me down, and and just said thank you and moved on. And the, the other mum that I was on air with at the time was saying how frightened she was of the prospect of talking to her children about drugs because she didn't think she had the you know, I, I'd said something about the fact that I felt that it was quite important just to have a conversation where you might um, betray some knowledge of slang terms for drugs. So that if your child, uh, you know, as a young adult, then is at a festival and terminology is being used about drugs, that they might know know a bit about it and they don't sort of agree to taking something because they because it's been given a nickname or a slang term that they didn't understand and then this other mum was really panicked and and was saying sort of like oh but I, I don't know any slang terms and and I I really wanted to reassure her I don't think it's something we should be frightened of I think like you said it's difficult but it's not I don't think it's scary I don't think you have to be an expert I think you just have to sort of start that dialogue so that your children and and as they become young adults, just feel confident that they can have conversations about drugs with you or or anyone without it being an enormous embarrassing taboo that you you know you shouldn't betray any lack of knowledge to anyone. And because uh, that way, I think that sort of uh, j- just taking something because someone's given you it without questioning what it is or how to take it, I think would is really dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree, and and. It's also acknowledging that, you know, not just young people, but, you know, we all do stupid things. I mean, I remember I was working at um, a festival not far from here uh, last year and we were in the welfare tent and I think it was... And the slightly wobbly sounding Skype line finally grinds to a halt. As always, just at the start of an interesting sounding anecdote. So, I tried a redial. The person whom you're trying to reach is currently unavailable. Which didn't work. 
so I went old school landline, which now sounds like Michael is in a sock drawer in Antarctica. Not at home in Manchester, where he actually is, but at least it doesn't drop out. And we both remembered the story he was telling, so he could do it all over again. Hello. Hello, is that Michael? It is, yeah. Hi, I, I couldn't reconnect the Skype, it disconnected and then I couldn't get it um, uh, connected, sorry. Can we just um, record a last question or two on, on the phone and then um, I'll bid you farewell? Yeah, sure. It just cut off just at the point you were starting to tell me about um, the, the festival uh, nearby you that you'd worked on. Uh, yeah, it, would, it, it was. Uh, I, I papped on about half hour before I realised that the. <laughs> internet was oh, no. Um, yeah, it, it was just a point about kind of like you know that giving people advice is 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 all well and good, but that you know both predominantly when we're young, but at any time we can we can also act really stupidly as well. And the example I was giving was uh, last year at a festival not far from here. I think it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. They they dragged these two 17, 18-year-olds in. Literally, doors open at 10. This was 11. And they'd already consumed a bottle of absinthe and a gram of ketamine between them. Um, didn't see any of the festival and spent about the next four hours rolling around and vomiting on the floor. Um, but when they when they came to, it's like, well, you know, they... Who'd have, who'd have thought that a gram of ketamine and a bottle of absinthe would could possibly go wrong? But the thing that they kept saying was that they 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 to me was that you know you're not going to condemn us, are you? you're not going to look down on us, you're not going to. And it was they they didn't want someone to give them accurate information. They just wanted someone with them who understood that they'd done something stupid and wasn't going to condemn them and wasn't going to kind of look down on them. It was just going to be there kind of with them for a short while. So sometimes I think it's, you know, it's a bit like that with your own children as well. Yeah. You know, that, yes, we can start these difficult conversations. Yes, you need to either... Um, make sure they've got decent drugs education or, you know, as I say, that they're, they're reading the right things. But it's about that, you know, if it all goes horribly wrong or if they, you know, as, as we all do, end up doing something stupid, that you're you're there for them and, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about talking to them, it's just there for them showing a bit of love, you know, and being there for them while they, while they do act, um, you know, do things that are dangerous or stupid. Yeah. The next episode of this podcast I want to make is um, chatting to a, a gym owner all, all about um, performance and image-enhancing drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that you've done uh, work, you know, in it looks like it for about 24 years, uh, mm. <laughs> sort of talking about steroids and weight loss pills and, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so is, is there anything that you've uh, learned in that area that you... Um, that you think is is sort of vital that I uh, talk about with uh, with this gym owner. I think that's a really interesting one because the first publications I did with uh, steroid users, I did a cartoon, and it was largely based on I, I was at a flat at the time, and the, the guy in the flat next door who was almost comical, he was you know great big muscular guy who you know was always coming back from the gym and slamming his bag down and kind of bragging and it was uh, you know this was a a cartoon based on him that had a character who'd um, he ran ran to Blackpool with a fridge on his back 
before breakfast <laughs> thing. Um, and everybody thought it was really, really funny, apart from steroid users, because, you know, there was a particular sense of humour. And, you know, we, when I later came to do information, I worked with a group of them, you know, some of them had to walk sideways through the door, sort of, you know, they were kind of like so big. And it was pretty much that, you know, like, you know, we've got all these weak chain-smoking, you know, uh, individuals who are not very fit criticising us and we're, you know, kind of like built like Adonises and, a, you know, fitness fanatics and, and all the rest of it. So it was pretty much about that image. So when I, I, I the last campaign I did, that was really, really crucial about the way that people looked. So we, we kind of employed a photographer who was... Um, a competitive bodybuilder and, and former steroid user himself, and the, the whole thing was again using this same process of um, how you communicate with that uh, particular group. But in terms of um, you know what what you would do in terms of you know useful advice in speaking to them, th- there's such a variety involved in that scene from people who are literally PhD students who, you know, know vast amounts about how it all works and everything like that, right through to people who, you know, think you can just use a few steroids and, you know, eat a curry and go out clubbing and drinking and the rest of it and expect your, your kind of like body to grow. So there's, there's, a, there's a huge variety of, of people involved in it. And there are a huge variety of issues as well, you know, right through from the kind of body consciousness and all, all that things right through people who are using for quite often the similar reasons to people get involved in other drugs. So there's a whole, it's a really massive, complex area. It's almost uh, a different field from sort of a recreational uh, drugs field at all. It's yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, like you said, that um, it's probably a whole different. I mean, I'm sure they cross over a bit. If you had a Venn diagram of the of the population groups, but mm. yeah, if you if you've got a bunch of people that are going out clubbing or the stoners or, or, or you know that you might find experimenting re- in recreational drugs, then you've got the kind of fitness crowd. But some of the dangers are are even more so because I think you know people are. Um, you know, they're putting their hearts under a lot of strain and they're um they might be they might be using injection as the method of putting those drugs in, which is, you know, quite rare for the for the casual drug user on the recreational side. So they could be actually encountering some real serious dangers. Um I mean the the, the HIV rates amongst uh, steroid injectors are not that much different from those of uh, heroin users. So there's obviously the issue with safer injection. And we even get, when we were running the service at needle exchanges in the northeast, we were getting thousands of, um, most of them young girls, who were injecting suntan lotion and injecting melanotan as well. So the the way it's, it tends to be viewed now is they call it performance and image-enhancing drugs. So they're non-psychoactive drugs, but they're drug, you know, drugs that will increase your sexual performance, drugs that will give you a suntan, drugs that will improve your body in, in some sort of way. Wow. So it's it, it's a different range of drugs used for a different reason, and it's, 
it's um, I, I find it fascinating, but I mean, you know, I, um, it, I'm, I'm no specialist in right. the, uh, the subject. Um, and uh, interesting as well that, that that the image side of it all is, I think, largely these days because of things like Instagram and uh, and and the image you're you're wanting to present in that world. Um, have you changed your methods as well? Are you doing lots of um, campaigns via? social media or online rather than leaflets or, or is old school posters and well, uh, flyers so still most, most of what i do these days is um information that's aimed at professionals and running professional um online groups about you know new and emergent drugs or dealing with incidents or, or things like that what I have done is, over the last few years, I've been producing, uh, when asked to, a, a series of kind of animations, and they're kind of marketed online and, you know, on your Facebook and uh, kind of stuff like that. Because, obviously, you know, the, the printed leaflet isn't the isn't as powerful as, as what it used to be. I mean, when we when we ran the Peanut Peak campaign, I think we worked it out, we sold six million leaflets. Um, you know, for 10, 20 pence each over wow. the few years that we, we kind of run it because there wasn't this access to, you know, information that you um, that you have now. But, yeah, I mean, I, I find myself now, I, I, I have to provide seven-day-a-week cover for, you know, when drug incidents or, or new things arrive. So even when I'm on holiday, I'm sat around a swimming pool uh, kind of... <laughs> catching up on kind of latest drug trends or what what's occurred but in terms of uh, marketing stuff it's you can do very specific things but it's there's just so much information out there that is such a vast array of of information that you could get and i think a lot of it is really really good as well so you know that there's everything from accurate information right through to you know, discussion groups with thousands and thousands of people in it who can, you know, can discuss their their own drug use. So, um, you know, the internet's like everything has, has kind of changed the world. I think it would be a lot harder in some ways to sort of run the camp, some of the campaigns that we'd we'd done in the past in the days of posters and printed leaflets that you would that you would want to do now, just because there's just so much traffic around, you know. Yeah, well, you still can get leaflets. Uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, like you said, sort of for specific audiences. So oh, yeah, pick them up at festivals and uh, and so on, like I, I've seen. Um, thanks ever so much for talking to me, Michael. Sorry about the connection issues in the middle, but um, welcome. Yeah, really good to to get your take on it, and um, uh, yeah, all the best. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye. So just a quickie, uh, you haven't listened to the interview, uh, but I've given you some of the, um, the materials that Michael Linnell makes. Which ones did you choose to look at? You had a choice of methadrone, co- I skimmed co- through all of them. cocaine and crack, LSD, ecstasy and drug-related emergencies, all of which I picked up when I went to see the Loop drug testing people. I'm sure there are probably ones on cannabis. I kind of looked at some of these um, briefly and then I... Yeah. Well, I spent most time with the cocaine and crack okay. because this one I knew like less about seeing as the difference between them but like because that, that's what interested me the most but like and then I didn't know exactly what LSD was but so I looked at those two mostly yeah and what do you think about the way they're done and the way they're written yeah it's quite good it's like 
was uh, I kind of flipped through the background bit because that's not interesting me. But like, um, I look, I like this bit. This bit. It just has the it has the questions that normal questions. I think it's really useful. It has just the right ones. Yeah. So it's the yeah that one there is what's that. the difference between and then just what is LSD exactly? What does it do? Yes. And then I went to like what was it? Um, ports and then that bit. Um, yeah, say it. So, because people. Um, how do the courts usually deal with LSD offenders? Which is quite interesting. Yeah. And then um, just the different forms of it. Right. So then how much does it cost? Interesting me. Yeah. And compared to like that, costs like a couple of quid, and then um, this one costs like fifty. Yes. Per gram. Well, for then powder cocaine. Yes. And I like the fact that he answers all of those questions, which. Uh, it's not essential to know those things, but it's interesting to know those things, and it just gives you a better all-round picture of oh, how how much do these things cost, and how do people take them, what effects do they have? Uh, so I think that's all interesting, and I just like the way he writes the stuff that so it's um, there's real people's accounts of taking it in the in there. You know, he's got quotes from people that he's interviewed about how what it feels like to take it, uh, but also later there's bits at the end. You know, what does it feel like? when you're coming down off things, you know, what, what does it feel like if you're having a bad trip? And you know, Yeah, yeah, I saw that bit. So, uh, and he, you know, he talks about all the things that you might have just heard of somewhere, but uh, he answers those questions. And he's not shy of, you know, making jokes or swearing. Just It's like not a normal person talking to you about it rather than yeah. feeling like a, a boring lecture. Uh, good. Oh, well... Um, uh, I, yeah, I thought they were really good, and he's an interesting chap. I enjoyed speaking to him. I had a I had a funny email exchange as I was trying to get in touch with uh, Michael Linnell. I, I had an email exchange with someone else in order to get me onto him, and I was asking this person if they'd be interested in talking to me on the podcast, and they and they said no. I think it's very irresponsible what you're doing. So I kind of questioned that and said, well, what, what do you mean? And I I sort of said why I didn't think it was irresponsible. And they said uh, that, you know, what happens if you end up being a problem drug user later uh, after having done this uh, podcast? So you're sort of on record in the podcast ether somewhere, podcast cloud, uh, doing this, and then what happens if you have problematic drug use later in life? Which, A, I don't think is going to happen, but... I feel like if you're if you are ending up being a problematic drug user, the least of your worries will be some ancient podcast from uh, 15 years ago that is floating around somewhere when you were uh, a teenager. Yeah. Do you feel like uh, it's you've been exploited, or it's uh, you're worried about it, or it's harmed you in any way? No. Do you have any more to elaborate on that? <laughs> I mean, no, not really. It's kind of just like one of those things you do. Yes. I mean, I work in radio and now podcasts and. You're, you've been quite used to me recording the odd thing here and there, haven't you? Yeah. Um, and I still stand by the fact that I feel like it, us having these sort of conversations, leaflets like this lying around the house, I can't see how that is a bad thing. I think more information no. is, is good. Yeah. And also, you're reaping the benefits of your involvement in the podcast by literally the second I press stop on that, you'll be putting on that 50 quid headset in order to play fortnight with your yeah. mates. So it's been lucrative. Good. All right. Well, I'll leave them lying around. So if you ever want to read them in yeah. full, you can. Okay? Yeah. Are you going now? Yeah. <laughs> Good.
I just wanted to ask what the PSHE, is that the, the way you say it? PSHE lessons? Yeah. I wondered what they'd been like. So uh, you told me that you did one about smoking and then have you done some other ones about other... Drinking. Okay. Do you have to do that finger sign when you say drinking? Yeah. Surely an 11-year-old girl shouldn't be going, Oi, oi, drinking! <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've done smoking and drinking. Anything on any other drugs? Um, a tiny bit on like, I think it was like cannabis or something. Mm-hmm. Or like the, the gel one we're doing with ma, ma, marijuana. That one. Yeah. But, I forgot kind of that bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, marijuana is cannabis. Um, the same thing. Uh, um. That's okay. Uh, so what did they say about, what, what, how did the lessons, what, what's, uh, what's the smoking lesson like? What, what happens? They said what it does to you and the side effects. Is it just your normal class teacher? You don't have an outside person that comes in and does it? No. That's just your normal teacher. And do they talk a lot about the diseases and the dangers? And... Yeah. Oh, and what's in cigarettes. Okay. Like the weird things in it. Other than just tobacco, the other chemicals that they put in. Yeah. And then what they're also in. Because one of them is in, like, toilet cleaning or something. Yes, there's lots of other products. And paint or something. Yeah. Tobacco is full of all sorts of things which are dangerous chemicals anyway. Tiny little minute amounts, but when you smoke them and inhale that into your lungs, it's pretty bad for you. And I think the way they make cigarettes, the way they stop, you know, the tobacco going off or whatever or drying out too much is they probably put other chemicals on it which aren't great for you either okay um and so at the end of it did you think i definitely don't want to smoke yes well that's good well i already did them but like yeah hmm. and then what how did the drinking one go we they mainly just said um well they talked a bit about hangovers right how much you're supposed to have like a daily amount, daily allowance. Yeah, or and like weekly. Or... Yeah, they measure it in units. Yeah. So a, a pint of beer has two units in it. Yeah. Like a glass of wine has two units in it as well. So even yeah. though one's smaller than the other, wine's stronger. So it has, and I think for adults they recommend about fifteen units a week. Yeah. Fourteen, I think. Yeah, I think it was fourteen. Yeah, and then if you're pregnant, you shouldn't drink. Adults. Or at least, like, one sip. Yes, yeah, a tiny amount. And did they talk about why people drink? They said some people do it because sometimes it's stress or something, I think, or... Yeah, you can end up being drinking to kind of numb if you're feeling stressed. or Yeah. And that could lead to you having a bit of a problem with drinking where every time you get stressed, all you want to do is drink wine at the end of the day. Yeah. Or in the middle of the day, if it gets really stressful. Um, but most people just drink because... They want to drink. Yeah, like mum's just gone to get a beer because I'm going to have my tea and it's a nice sunny evening and something happens to grown-ups. <laughs> Stop doing that hand signal. Um, uh, something happens to grown-ups in the summer where you go, oh, be nice to have a beer with dinner, mm. even though it's only a Tuesday night. Did, what did you feel like? So I... I'm glad and I'm sure that the tone of the smoking one is don't smoke. It's a bit of a yeah dangerous 
not very sensible thing to do. And the other thing that they probably didn't say that I would say is it's not even much fun either. Mm. You know, yeah. if you smoke a cigarette, it doesn't. You don't go, oh wow, that's great. Oh, you know, it doesn't even feel nice. It just, it just makes you cough, and it's not very nice. Yeah. Whereas having a drink, people. Did they say that people do it because it's nice, because people like the taste yeah, of it? Yeah, they said that some people do it just because they like it mm. and they want it. I think most people... Yeah, I think most people do it because they go, oh, yeah, I'd like a beer with my dinner, or I, like, I enjoy a glass of wine. Yeah. And in this country, we do everything as adults with a drink. If you go to a wedding, it's like, oh, cheer, toast the happy couple with a glass of Prosecco or champagne. Yeah. And then if you go to a funeral, it's oh commiserate the loss of our dear departed friend with a beer at the pub afterwards, uh, birthdays, beer. Uh, even when people have a baby, the first thing that I did when... I don't think I did it with you because you were born in the morning and you are our second baby, but when we had your older brother, Credence, my best mate Rob came down and we went for a beer at the pub. <laughs> Her mum was left in the hospital holding the baby. Uh, so it is funny. We have a funny relationship with alcohol where we use it a lot but I think as long as you don't use it a lot a lot and getting a problem with it then that's kind of okay um and did they did it feel like there was a moral or a message to the talk with with the alcohol one well they said well I felt maybe it was like drinking isn't bad but it's also not good if you have loads or Mm. yeah yeah a recent study reckons that one in ten people in a hospital bed in the UK, one in every ten people, is in there because of something to do with alcohol. Yeah. So that's diseases that you get if you just drink for years and years and years at a heavy level, but also accidents and yeah. people getting fights and all sorts. So it's definitely not good to do it to excess. Well, that's interesting. And do you think you're doing any more, or is that the end of your PSHE drugs bit? I think that's the end, I think. Cool. Well, thanks for telling me about it. Welcome. Good. Now, famous. Yeah. <laughs>